Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. I'm an editor here at Gestalt IT. And joining me from across cyberspace, but always close to my heart, the one, the only Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Rich. I am enjoying a fine national paperclip day today, and I hope you are too. Uh, it really holds me together, and that's what I appreciate it. The other thing that holds me together is the fine world of Computex news. Computex happening in Taipei uh, throughout this week, although like CES, all of the news kind of breaks the day before, the day or two before. So we saw some announcements coming out earlier this week that we can talk about here. The big one in my mind, and this may be because I'm a former fanboy, is AMD announced new processors using its Zen 2 chiplet-based microarchitecture, all built on a 7 nanometer process. That chiplet approach is kind of interesting because it allows them, instead of just creating big giant CPUs and then they shut off parts that are defective or something like that, it allows them to make them smaller and kind of uh, put them together on the silicon, as it were, and it allows for a little bit more efficiency. Uh, the uh, flagship is the Ryzen 9 3900X, which offers 12 cores, 24 threads, a base clock of 3.8 gigahertz, turbo speeds up to 4.6. Uh, all of these new uh, uh, Zen 2-based uh, Ryzen chips will support uh, PCI Express 4.0, uh, so for really fast interconnects there, and up to 40 lanes of uh, PCI Express. And it'll use the existing AM4 socket for backwards motherboard compatibility, although you'll need a new motherboard for the PCI 4 uh, stuff. And all of this uh, in the 3900X comes with a TDP, a thermal envelope, of just 105 watts, so just over 8 uh, watts uh, per core, which is really cool. Uh, the new processors will launch uh, July 7th, and well, the 3900X will retail for $499. Uh, they also updated uh, their, or they announced their new updated Navi-based architecture GPUs, uh, which will be led by the uh, Radeon RX 5700, also built on 7 nanometer, excuse me, 7 nanometer process, easy for me to say, and will uh, have a, a bunch of GD, GDDR6 memory, 25% better performance, 50% better power efficiency compared to existing Vega cards. That'll also come out sometime in July, but they don't have an exact date in the month. Interestingly, though, on the enterprise side, they also announced that Microsoft Azure will now offer Epic-based compute instances. Epic is the enterprise application of that Zen architecture and will have instances with availability up to 10,000 cores. Uh, they also showed off some basic numbers for their forthcoming Epic 2 ROM processors. It's the next generation of that, uh, showing them to be twice as fast in a dual socket configuration as a second generation scalable platinum Xeon processor at protein folding, so not exactly something everyone's going to be doing with their enterprise CPUs, but, you know, definitely a high-intensity task. So, Tom, AMD's kind of already, the last two years, I would say, has kind of turned their narrative around. Is this them maintaining that momentum, or is this something different? I think this is just maintaining the momentum. Um, in, the Intel has kind of, you know, they've doubled down on x86. Uh, their forays into the ARM market aren't paying off as well as they'd like. So AMD is trying to out-iterate them in the, the x86 market. I mean, when I built my fine rig over here that I use for day-to-day uh, -day non work stuff, I, I went with an AMD uh, processor uh, just because the Ryzen was a better value for what I wanted for it. Um, now, obviously, I went with a six-core Ryzen, and now we're going to have to upgrade because I need a 12-core Ryzen. <laughs> so I'm going to talk to the boss and see if I can make those cores run really fast because I need to fold some protein of things. I guess, but uh, the to me the bigger news was the was the uh, use for Azure with their Epic uh, stuff. I mean, this is kind of uh, trying to jump into the HPC market. I mean, ten thousand cores, that's a lot of parallelized workloads if you really need it. 
um, I, I think that that's kind of where this is going to go. I mean, consumer tech has always been cutthroat. No matter what you do, you're you're on top of the world when you're running, you know, whatever the last Pentium that people wanted was, or whatever the last Core Two Duo was. And now Intel's kind of fallen off that market. And AMD is the hot new hotness, and we'll see how that goes for them for the next couple of years. Yeah, and it's one thing for them to pick up some market share in you know, the overall enterprise market, which it's, it's harder to quantify. I mean, AMD is, of course, going to come out with some rosy numbers, I'm sure, uh, looking at the sales uh, in their data center division. But when you see cloud providers now starting to get on board, one, that's just like another, that's several orders of magnitude more in terms of uh, direct purchases per customer. But also, it shows that this, they, that people aren't seeing their roadmap as just being, okay, they had one really great architecture, Intel's going to out-iterate them down the road, you know, down five years down the road. You know, these are big strategic decisions that these public cloud providers have to make and the fact that you know i mean yes it took them two years to do it but now that's going to be available now for some time and again just kind of shows faith not just in amd in their own design process but other companies coming there and you know we're going to talk about this a little bit later but i i feel like this kind of competition can only be good um for the overall market in general whether you're a consumer or for the enterprise yeah i agree all right. Uh, also at Computex, NVIDIA announced the NVIDIA EGX platform, an AI platform for the edge. The platform can scale from a single server based on NVIDIA's Jetson Nano processor to an entire rack of NVIDIA T4-based edge servers. And will also be using the recently acquired Mellanox NICs uh, for connectivity. I thought that was an interesting uh, addition there. It will also feature OpenShift integration at launch, so you got all of your uh, container orchestration needs uh, taken care of if that's your bag. NVIDIA sees that this is an exploding market for things like smart cities or just you know the general cavalcade of iot devices that we're seeing uh, in ever increasing numbers and the needs for low latency processing coming from those do some basic processing before punting everything back to the cloud uh, we've seen nvidia partner with the likes of pure storage when we're talking about their airy platform to kind of it's not exactly an edge device but definitely putting this kind of ai processing maybe in smaller data centers or, or not not just in these hyperscale data centers um, but how how big could this be with a dedicated edge AI platform for NVIDIA? How big is it going to be? How big does NVIDIA want it to be? Because they'll <laughs> keep pumping money into this until it makes sense for people. I, I, I guess my bigger question is how many of you people really want to do AI at the edge? I mean, think about this. Um, this is the problem that you have. Uh, if you've ever been to someplace like Home Depot, um, you know, they have those trucks available for sale or for rent. You can rent, you know, spend $75 and you rent a truck for a day. Mm -hmm. It means that the two times a year you need a pickup truck for whatever reason, you don't have to spend $57,000 to buy a pickup truck and worry the other 364 days of the year where you're going to park it, where you're, what you're going to do with it. So uh, to me, this kind of feels like that problem. You know, is, is there really that much AI need out there? Maybe. I don't know, but is NVIDIA seriously thinking that they're going to be able to convince customers to put deploy AI at the edge? That's a much harder sell. I don't know. I think that when you're looking at, you know, problematic or dystopia, you know, in future dystopia news, um, when you're looking at the rollout of, you know, like facial ID systems and stuff like that, where what you really, you know, what you're going to want that AI system for is to take all of these, this is a stream of images that's never ending, uh, you know, do some rapid short-term processing, maybe turn that into, you know, kind of like Apple does, where they basically they turn that into, um, 
uh, basically turn that into a numeric value and compare that against a stored value that is of a known identity to a person. That's a task that does require a substantial amount of AI processing uh, and then would benefit from being able to take that, okay, it's like do, do that bulk work at the edge, then send that back to a central repository to really speed up that process rather than sending everything down the pipe. Stuff like that, I definitely see use cases for. Um, it It is interesting now, you know, we're starting to see legislation around that particular use case, but you know, yeah, I don't think your your mom and pop shop is going to be worried about having AI on the edge, but uh, you know, more sophisticated security, more sophisticated employee tracking systems, you know, maybe that that is the the use case. I guess it it we don't know until you know we kind of have all these IoT devices out there. We have all this information that they're capable theoretically of of gathering. You know, whether it's uh, you know room temperature or or you know having microphones everywhere and stuff like that, and then to have that kind of inferencing ability on the edge, uh, you know, I, I think that we'll, we'll see what the use cases are for that now that that's possible to even have it, right? Although, how do you sell that when there's no use case? That's another thing. Yeah. All right, also at, uh, uh, at Computex, it wouldn't be chip news if we weren't talking about Intel. The big announcement, the 10th gen 10 nanometer ice-like chips are shipping to OEMs with products coming to consumers by the end of 2019. Yay! You'll notice I said consumers because there was absolutely no word on the enterprise, which are still running basically sky like silicon for the past three four generations uh these will be consumer mobile chips uh with the with core i3s running through i5 uh running at 9 15 and 28 watts so pretty low relatively low power stuff kind of the 15 watt is your mainstream laptop cpu 9 watt is something that's fanless 28 watt is something a little bit more high power uh, these will uh, these will bring recently announced enterprise features like Deep Learning Boost, which we heard about at uh, Intel's uh, Data Centric Innovation Day, uh, which should increase machine learning inferencing by nine uh, nine times nine uh, x, uh, if you were. Instructions per clock increase eighteen percent, and graphics are also getting a big boost, which I thought was interesting. They're claiming Intel Iris Plus offering performance on par uh, with a current gen AMD APU, something that AMD's hung their hat on for a while. Thunderbolt three and Wi-Fi six support will also be on board, uh, kind of baked into the chips if these end up shipping in volume does this help turn the intel narrative around tom turns it around a little bit but i think that they're kind of focusing in the wrong areas um, i'll tell you the last time i went shopping for a macbook um, i was looking for processor i was looking for ram I was looking for video performance i was not looking for deep machine learning performance <laughs> so i get that intel's trying to skate where the puck is going the problem is is that they're skating in the parking lot <laughs> Um, consumers do not care about deep deep machine learning performance. It's a, a lot of it is like, um, remember when Intel was really focusing on the, uh, the VT setup that they had for the, for BIOS, mm -hmm. um, you know, my grandmother doesn't care what VT <laughs> performance is. It's a feature that exists in there. As long as she can download pictures of her grandkids and her cats as fast as humanly possible and her apps don't crash, she doesn't care. If this will allow me to make uh, better deepfake videos more quickly, um, where I can put Nicolas Cage's face on someone, I do feel like that's a win for a certain subset of consumers, though, right, Tom? I think you may be right, and since my hair is a bird, your argument is invalid. <laughs> All right, in non-Computex news, uh, again, it wouldn't be the Gestalt ID rundown if we didn't talk about the latest update in the saga of Huawei. Uh, we heard last week that a number of major chip providers, uh, Google's Android and other companies were kind of severing ties and saying they're basically not going to be doing business uh, with Huawei because of being placed on the U.S. entity, or the U.S. Department of Commerce entity list. Uh, now we're also hearing that there's some fallout with standards bodies. 
the Wi-Fi Alliance announced Huawei has temporary was temporarily restricted from the standards body, while the SD Association, which makes up all the SD card standards, re removed Huawei from its member list. Not clear there if that's temporary or not. Uh, and then Huawei itself announced that it had voluntarily withdrawn from JDEC, uh, which creates uh, standards for the semiconductor industry. Uh, these standards are all open, and Huawei can still develop for them, so they're not being cut off from the ability to make SD cards or something like that. But they will no longer uh, have any say in new standards being developed, which is a really big deal, I think, for a big giant company that makes all sorts of products and, and all sorts of uh, you know enterprise networking solutions like Huawei to be cut off from the Wi-Fi lands. Kind of a big deal. Uh, these won't have an immediate business impact, but does being off these standards bodies have long-term prospect problems for Huawei? Mm, ask Huawei if they care. Oh. I think the answer is going to be no. <laughs> and here's why. Uh, you know who else is not a member of the Wi-Fi Alliance right now? The Cupertino Fruit and Mobile Device Company. Hmm. Apple has not gotten their chipsets certified by the Wi-Fi Alliance in quite a while. Now, part of the reason is, is because they tend to bake in a little extra you know, goodness there. But, um, you know, conversations that I've had with some friends of mine, uh, especially around the mobile device uh, arena, Huawei doesn't care. Uh, and uh, another piece of the story that kind of was very interesting was, you know, China was wanting to retaliate and they wanted to ban Apple. And Huawei specifically said, no, do not <laughs> ban Apple from China. Now, the, the cynic in me is like, well, we're not done copying all their stuff yet. Um, it, but it also goes back to that whole idea of, you know, the little competition is good for everybody. I think what you're going to see, though, is the same kind of situation you get when someone kind of takes a, a really weird jog to the right uh, when it comes to developing things. So let's just say, for example, that that Huawei's cut off from all these standards bodies, um, you know, in the words of the immortal bender, screw it, I'll go build my own moon with blackjack and hookers. Uh, they're going to do exactly what they want for China, and then that's going to make it really difficult to sell into the Chinese market when the Huawei phones do something that nobody else can do because Huawei had to develop the technology on their own. Um, you know, think about something like this. Could you imagine in 2019 selling a phone that does not have some sort of biometric unlocking mechanism, whether it's a fingerprint or face print? You could, but it's a very, very specialized market. Imagine if Huawei came up with some kind of specialized unlocking mechanism that was completely seamless and worked beautifully. And they developed it internally for, you know, a year or two, a couple of iterations of phones. And then suddenly everybody became, you know, like addicted to it or, or relied on it. Then now they're driving the market to develop this new kind of technology, even though they've been isolated from all the standards bodies. Because the funny thing is, is when you have to build it yourself, sometimes you build it a little differently than you would if you had to comply with somebody else's wishes. Do you think that there is a, a possibility, you know, bringing up the idea of screw it, well, I'll build my own, that there will be, you know, you have any number of giant tech companies out in China that are hugely influential in Asia and increasingly the, uh, all over the world. So do you think you would see, you know, standards by that are made up of Huawei and Xiaomi uh, mm -hmm. And Baidu and that kind of stuff, uh, you know, kind of the Warsaw Pact to the the NATO of the of the Wi-Fi Alliance, right? Man, history major reaching all the way back. All um, the way back. Wow. I think you could actually see that. I think you could see competing standards bodies in the you know East Asia uh, realm of things that kind of basically are like, well, if you want to play in our backyard, you have to be certified by our standards bodies. And I could see this being a situation where if you if you had a company that you were attempting to say, I don't know, bring to heel because they were doing some nefarious things in the industry, it would be one thing. Basically, we're not going to let you play with the rest of our toys until you decide to play nice with everybody. 
But that's not what this is. This is a, an outside entity, in this case, the U.S. federal government, basically enforcing this choice. These people did not want to abandon Huawei. They're a good customer. I mean, yeah, they're doing some shady things. And most people that I've talked to said whether or not this was the wrong or right decision by the U.S. federal government, Huawei needs to have their wrists slapped about some things. I think what you're going to find out, though, Huawei doesn't care. So even if you eventually say, OK, well, you know, you can come back because you've served your time, Huawei may just say, you know what? Too bad. We're done. We're, we're finished with you. We created our own standards bodies and deal with it. Yeah, we are starting to see some international uh, uh, fallout is the wrong word, but a little bit of an international reaction where you're seeing some, uh, uh, especially UK carriers saying, OK, you know, we're going to make sure that Huawei, you're still a viable company before we agree to pre-order all of your 5G phones and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. the, in no way was it anything more restrictive than that, right? It wasn't like we're reviewing our strategic partnership with Huawei over security concerns, blah, blah, blah. So I'm interested to see if as this drags on and if uh, I, I think the biggest challenge will be, you know, for, for Huawei to prove this is not a completely existential uh, problem for them. And once they can assure customers of that, I, yeah, I do agree that in a lot of ways it's going to be business as normal and, you know, uh, for better or worse, um, you know, kind mm -hmm. of uh, rowing their own canoe there. Pretty much. Next up, Microsoft announced that their Windows Defender Application Guard extensions are now available for Chrome and Firefox. Uh, these allow enterprise admins to set a blacklist of untrusted sites. If a user goes to one of those sites, they'll be redirected to a containerized Microsoft Edge session. Going back to a trusted site will automatically switch the user back to their default browser, so you know they won't say, like, Microsoft hijacked my browser or anything like that. Uh, this is a Windows 10 only feature for now, although given that Microsoft has Chromium-based Edge builds out for macOS, which I am using right now to stream this uh, wonderful show, uh, I, well, this might be an only a matter of time before we see this feature coming to other platforms. You know, Tom, you're our, you're our security guru uh, over here at Gestalt IT. How effective can this be for enterprise threat management? I think it's a good first line of defense. And if you're a fan of security and you follow someone like you know, Swift on security, uh, again, the irony is, is one of the most trusted names in security is pretending to be a pop star. Um, How's <laughs> <laughs> that for an impersonation attack? Um, th there's some really good thought process around this. You, you basically make it almost impossible for people to screw with you because you make it so difficult for them to get past your lines of defense. And I mean, some other people have been experimenting with this. I know that um, there was a, was it Bromium, I think was one of the companies that was trying to do basically this containerized security solution. And I saw a couple of people at RSA doing it. Um, putting it in a browser is kind of novel because I mean, when you think about it, most people spend their life in a web browser some way or another. I mean, it's actually one of the reasons why on my Mac, I tend to do certain things in Chrome but I do a lot of other things in Firefox because it has, or not Firefox, but Safari, because it has a much smaller security footprint because people don't write exploits for Safari because who uses it? <laughs> and, and this is, I think, also Microsoft kind of kowtowing to the, the, the world as we know it in 2019, which is not the world of 1999 when if you weren't running Netscape Navigator or Internet Explorer, who gives a damn? Um, I think they realize that Microsoft Edge is an interesting idea but it's not going to go much further than that anytime soon. And let's face it, if you're not running Chromium or WebKit as your back end, who cares? So well, they're they're developing for what people are using, not what they want people to use. Yeah, and I, I do think that it's an interesting way to look at a web browser, right? I, I think previously we've looked at it's an all or nothing. Is this the default? Is the only thing that matters, right? Because you're going to be doing all your searching through there. But turning it into a secure, a potential security tool, because even as uh, Microsoft, you know, adopts a Chromium backend for Edge and kind of re-releases that out into the wild, I really, 
I mean, yeah, it's going to be fast for the first year or so, and then inevitably, like all browsers, they're going to add features, it's going to blow, it's going to end, slow down, and mm-hmm. someone's going to write a think piece that it's a memory hog and you shouldn't use it anymore. Um, so I, I think they have an uphill battle in terms of like you know making this a, a popular uh, a mass adoption kind of browser, but making it a the the thing that oh oh I'm at an untrusted site you know thank God I have this you know containerized edge uh, uh, instance right here to to keep me safe I, I think that's a really interesting approach. Yeah, I think so too. And it's if Microsoft keeps developing it, I think that they could potentially take a lead in the web browser security market. Um, that which is especially ironic considering how many pictures there are out there of Internet Explorer completely covered in toolbars. <laughs> or you know, I I don't even think uh, for a while there on like the Pwn to Own events that they would even run like an, an IE one, right? That wasn't even like a challenge. It was just like, yeah, we just assume you'd be able to crack it in three seconds. We're not giving you a yeah. laptop for that. Well, speaking of web browsers, the Web Hypertext Application Technology Working Group, otherwise known as WhatWG, comprised of Apple, Google, Microsoft, and Mozilla, has signed a memorandum of understanding, my favorite kind of memorandum, with the World Wide Web Consortium, W3C, W3C, excuse me, the standards body for the World Wide Web. The agreement states that W3C is officially giving up publishing future HTML and DOM standards and will give full control back to browser vendors. The W3C will draft recommendations for future web standards, but what WG will decide what actually ends up in their products. It was This is kind of the reverse of what was happening where they the, the web browsers would integrate these features and then kind of ask uh, W3C to, uh, to adopt those into forthcoming HTML standards. Uh, so the official HTML standard will be the HTML living standard as well as the uh, DOM living standard, both maintained by what WG. Tom, given the dominance of Chromium, which we're kind of just discussing here, you know, Microsoft uh, adopting it for Edge, does this mean that Google is the de facto decider for future HTML standards? No. And if you don't believe that, let's go pour one out for my favorite tags, the blink tag and the marquee tag. <laughs> because those were standards or pseudo standards. I, I can remember a time when my eyeballs were assaulted with blink tags every time I opened Netscape Navigator. <laughs> And now you can't find one. And it's been relegated to this fun little history fact. Um, I think that what you got with with W3C trying to push standards is the same thing you have with all standards bodies. And I, and I recorded a podcast about this with some friends recently. You know, you've got those people that are willing to jump over the cliff of innovation uh, without a bungee cord. And then you've got those people in the middle that are kind of holding onto the leash going, no, 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 not yet, not yet. And then you've got the people who are way behind and those people tend to run standards bodies. They're like, we can't do anything close to the edge of this cliff until we know for a fact we have security lines and safety lines and we call the insurance company and everything checks out. So by making it so that the browser manufacturers drive more of the standard, we're getting back into that iteration where people are just going to race forward to do all kinds of crazy things. Now, the good news is, is that if you are anyone who's not using Chromium for your rendering engine, which at this point I believe is Apple and (laughs) maybe like Firefox... If you're using um, you have a, on Linux? I, exactly. I mean, if you're using like Lynx or the, the Mosaic, which is still around, um, you have a lot more say now in what goes on. So in, in fact, this is actually the opposite of this, because what you could potentially see is the W3C basically throwing their hands in the air and saying, well, if Google's the 75% of the browser market. <laughs> screw it. We're just going to do whatever they do. Now, smaller companies can force standards on Google. And if that's the case, Let's bring back that blink tag, boys. <laughs> Tom, I, 
I don't feel like we can leave this episode on a note of hope. Uh, so I'm just going to mention we're not going to have a full discussion on this, but Apple recently uh, updated their MacBook Pros, supposedly with a new material for their keyboard. Tom, what number keyboard are you on with your MacBook currently? Number this is number. the third keyboard that I've had. And by the way, when they replace a keyboard for your Mac, even if it's one key, they have to pull the entire top of the cover off and they have to replace everything underneath. So uh, uh, supposedly iFixit took it to Cal Poly. They did all sorts of spectrographic tests. They're using a nylon kind of gasket now to prevent dust from getting in. Are you, On a scale of 1 to 10, how confident are you that the butterfly keyboard is now fixed and not entirely uh, uh, suspect design to begin with? four um i'm still not sure this this design i i i I think it's okay it's not my favorite i'm a model m guy by heart um so that's my favorite keyboard of all time um i feel like the butterfly still has a lot of issues that there's only so much turd polishing that you can do here (laughs) um and and, but the problem is is that we're not going to get into a situation anytime soon where people are going to look up and go wow i'm going to stop buying macbooks because your keyboard sucks and i know that because when i'm at home I use one of these things because this is a whole lot easier for me to type on than trying to type on that keyboard right there. But there are still times when I have to do it out in public. And so I don't know. Uh, I I don't think I'm going to buy a new Mac anytime soon. I don't think that Apple making a new keyboard for my MacBook is going to make me go out and buy a brand new one. So they're kind of stuck in a rut, basically. I'm just going to say, Dell is trialing out magnets for keyboards, and I'm 100% on board with this, even though I'm sure it will be broken in magical ways. Well, that just about does it for the Gestalt IT Rundown for this week. Tom, thank you so much for being here. If people want to find more of your fine work, where can they look? You can always check me out on my website at networkingnerd.net, but I've also been doing a lot of writing, covering some of the briefings and things that I've been taking at uh, gestaltit.com. And you can find my writing there as well, gestaltit.com, or on Twitter, at Mr. Anthropology. That's M-R Anthropology. Remember, if you missed the live show, you can always catch uh, the video on Facebook or YouTube. Uh, just search for Gestalt IT on YouTube, or look for us in your pod catcher of choice as well, and we will greet your ear holes. Until next time we meet, I'm Rich Straffolino, wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly day. 